Let's continue worshiping our risen Savior by turning in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 8 through 12. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. If you're a guest with us, you can follow along in the Bible provided in the seat back in front of you, uh, or the scriptures are also uh, in the bulletin that's been handed out as well. 2 Timothy chapter 1, looking at verses 8 through 12. It is a joy to see you all here on this Easter Sunday. And I know for many of us, this is a very energizing day. For those of us who came to the sunrise service, not as energizing. (laughs) But for the rest of us, there's just something nice about putting on some good clothes and gathering with God's people, planning for whatever activities may be this afternoon with your family, your friends. Typically, a good lunch is involved. It's an energizing day. It's, it's a high emotionally for many. This is something about Easter. It kind of escapes some of the depression and melancholy that can even slip into Christmas. Uh, you don't hear of people talking about a blue Easter. Uh, it's always uh, energetic, high, happy, life, fun. But I need your help here. You're going to fill in the blank. Are you ready? What comes up? And it's so weird, the way that our emotions work, how we can get so hyped up on all the right things, it seems. And then that energy just dissipates. It just, just goes away. It's like, what happened to that vigor that I felt on that Sunday morning, that Easter, when I just really was thinking that this is it, I can't wait to live for Jesus this week, and then the na- afternoon nap happens, and you wake up, and you're just thinking, I'm in a terrible mood. <laughs> Monday comes, and you're like, I don't know that I want to do this. I felt a lot better 24 hours ago than I do right now. We engage in Easter, but I think very often We fail to avail ourselves of the energy provided by it. We engage in Easter, but we fail to avail ourselves of the energy provided by it. The passage we're looking at today is about this divine source of energy, something that takes you beyond the emotional high of of a service, of a season, and will sustain you in the most darkest, the most dark, the most difficult moments of your entire life. Particularly here, the circumstances are pretty dire. It's kind of dark. The context, the background of 2 Timothy chapter 1 especially is that of the last words of a faithful leader of the Christian church. In fact, in this particular moment, as he's writing this letter, it could be his last, he is sitting in a jail cell in Rome awaiting what historians would ultimately record as his beheading. He could be days away, he could be weeks his way, but this will be the last letter that he'll fire off. And he sends it off to this this, the son he never had, this young protege in ministry, this guy named Timothy. 
And Timothy was indeed his companion, his compatriot, his ally in seeing the gospel advance and seeing people delivered from death into life. And so Paul is passing on the baton, if you will, to this young man. And yet here's the deal. Timothy is not Paul. Paul is your typical charismatic leader. The guy who just produces energy in and of himself, it seems. Timothy, he's a little more timid. He's a little more shy. We learn from the scriptures that he gets physically sick often. We learn that he has kind of a natural shyness and fear of man. It doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would be able to propel a movement forward, and yet Paul passes the baton to him. And it's an intimidating prospect. Because contrary to the 21st century West where people will at least give a head nod to Christianity or give you Easter Monday off, (laughs) in the Roman Empire, Christianity was a threat. You're saying that there's a different Lord than Caesar. That's just straight up dissension. You're advocating for a new morality, one that challenged some of the deepest norms of the day. And on top of this, You're saying that it all happened through the crucifixion of a Jewish rabbi and then his supposed resurrection from the dead. It's not a very credible message. It's not a very popular message. And needless to say, there's high cost associated with it. Paul's on, on faith, his own faithfulness to this particular ministry has thrown him in jail. It has signed his execution warrant. And now he's saying to this young, scared guy, okay, you keep it going. That's going to take some energy. That's going to take some energy. So where does that come from? How would anyone ever endure those types of circumstances, that type of adversity. And if it does work, if there is some secret to this kind of energy for that kind of opposition, might it not work for us as well? You know the old saying, out of the frying pan into the fire? Let's reverse it. If it works for the fire, would it not work for the frying pan? Like if, if this energy being provided for this unique context where things are so hard, so difficult, if it wouldn't work for Timothy in the most dire of circumstances, would it not work for us as well? Paul gives here his His source of energy that will keep us engaged and alive in our allegiance to the Lord Jesus. Something that will energize us beyond Easter itself. So let's look at it together. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 8 through 12. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel By the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Notice the source of Paul's energy, the thing that he passes on to his young protege and all those who want to be energized in their allegiance to Jesus beyond special events. It's pretty simple. He says, do what you do by the power of God. God has provided a special power for those who will rely upon Him, a special energy. And we see what that power can do in two different ways from just these few verses. The same power that we have access to is the same power that the Father used to destine salvation. The power that you and I have, that you and I have access to, to live a life of allegiance to the Lord Jesus, to sustain the spiritual energy that we need for Monday and not just Sunday, is the same power that the Father used to destine salvation in Jesus. Think of that term destiny for a moment. Like It implies that there is a way things will be regardless of what we do about it. The text is saying that the Father has set in course a certain destiny for all those who are in the Lord Jesus. He makes things happen. You see it clearly. He says, do this by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Notice that. Whatever rescue we enjoy with our Lord, whatever new purpose in life that God has given us, it has happened not because of our own works, the text says, but because of what He has done, what He has spoken. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Notice that. I think sometimes we think that our strategy for spiritual success actually begins with us planning out our week well. We say things like, well, make sure you get ready for church on Sunday by laying out your clothes on Saturday. After all, who doesn't, you know, put out their running shoes before they run the next day? I mean, we make it sound like it's just a matter of us following the right steps, doing the right procedure. We're all of a sudden going to have the right amount of energy to navigate the spiritual difficulties that will assault us in the week to come. But Paul's first insight into this divine energy that will sustain the entire Christian movement on the shoulders of this young man is not, hey, make sure you know how to plan your calendar. He actually begins by saying, you have access to power, the same power that has decreed and destined Your rescue in Jesus. And by the way, this didn't happen on Saturday night. It happened in eternity past before the ages began. 
Like, it doesn't get any stronger. Can you, you want to bend your mind for a second? You know, like when you try to go back, like, you know, what happened before anything happened? <laughs> and what happened before that and before that and before that? That's what we call, friends, eternity past. Your mind can't conceive it, nor can mine. It just shuts down. And Paul's saying, at that point where your brain shuts down just a little farther beyond that, God did something. God determined that some things would happen. Some things that you yourself could not do. It was not about your works. It was not about your planning. It was about God's decreed, determined grace. He was just dead set determined to deliver some from darkness into light. From death into life. It was his plan. On your uh, insurance policy, friends, this is called an act of God. You ever see those? I remember the first time I read through, like, I just thought it was important to read it. And I was like, oh, wow, they're deists. They believe in God. What an umbrella statement, right? An act of God. Well, something we couldn't control. Man, what is it that we can control? Have any of our lives turned out the way that we originally intended them to? Did your morning even go the way that you expected it to? I mean, if we have never been able to like fully execute on our intentions... Like, how would we expect that the energy and the momentum that we need to live a lifetime of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus is somehow going to come from our human creativity, planning, and capacity? Paul is saying to this young man, this scared man, this sick man, this limited man, the one who's going to be responsible for propagating this this life-giving news to the world, Hey, the only way you're going to get this is to remember that it comes from God's power and not yours. And His power, by the way, is what has determined that people get delivered from darkness into light. It's been His plan. It's not your works. It's His initiative. Here's the good news, friends. We have access to that power. Whatever spiritual opportunity you seek to engage in, whatever spiritual battle you try to face, whatever initiative you take on for Jesus and feel like you constantly fail at, I want you to know, friends, that ultimately you will only succeed insofar as you access the divine power of God who decrees all things to be. I'm not saying that God doesn't work through human means. I'm not implying that if you get the fact that God is the one who ultimately brings good plans to completion, that you're somehow just going to sit back, relax, take it easy, and hope that He gets it all done without you. That's not the way that it works. But it will not work apart from you first accepting that it ultimately relies on Him and not on you. It begins there. It doesn't end there But this energy beyond Easter begins with the decree of God. You need to understand that God is determined to do good. And listen to this. This is where it all gets really practical. He's determined to do good in Christ Jesus. Where is the energy found? Where does God 
pardon the grammar here for a second, get the good done. The text makes it clear. It's in Christ Jesus. It's not in God generally. It's not in religion generally. It's not in good motives or initiatives or social change or general positive feelings. It happens in Christ Jesus. That's the source of the energy. That's the way that God has determined to work. He's destined it that way. As Americans, we don't like the term uh, destiny or fate. We love to like overcome that narrative. <laughs> I still remember being a kid and, and hearing those words from Darth Vader, it is your destiny. And, w- and what's the whole point of, of the meta narrative? Luke overcomes his destiny. He beat destiny. He defied fate. He defied this this power that works over and above all things. Listen to me, friends. The power of God is not something to be resisted. There is life in this destiny. You will not overcome it. There is no way around it. The only way you will enjoy the energy to remain faithful to your Lord Jesus is in Him. Ironically, the energy for life after Easter is in Easter itself. It's in what Jesus has done. The Sunday, this particular Sunday, it doesn't like set you up to like get what you need for the week to come. Meditating on Jesus and what He has done is what you need. Which is why, friends, historically, I don't want to, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. But like Easter's not in the Bible. Resurrection Day is. And you know when that's celebrated? Every Sunday. Every Sunday. Every week, God's people were to be reminded about God's dynamic power at play in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have energy for those moments and times beyond Easter because of the Father's destiny, like He has planned it in Jesus. What do you do with that? Well, first I would tell you, confess this Jesus as that source of energy and life that you so desperately need. It only comes from Him and from Him alone. Not Him plus something else or someone else, but Jesus and Jesus alone. Confess Him as Lord and then continue Continue in His Word and with His people. So we have access for this, this energy beyond Easter by the power of the Father who destined salvation in Jesus. But we also have this energy by the power of the Son who displayed that salvation in His death. So we noticed this first source of power, the Father who destined salvation in Jesus. But there's a second source, and that is the Son who displayed the salvation in His death. 
Notice how Paul continues. He's continuing to explain to Timothy how he's going to be able to persevere amid all the opposition, the persecution, the difficulty. I mean, he's in a hot water situation for sure. And he says, look, you do this by the power of God who not only decreed that all good would come in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 10. It says, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The Father may have determined our success, but the Son is the one who displayed it. He's the one that made it known. Like, how would you ever know if God had planned something in eternity past unless He Himself had revealed it to you, unless He showed it to you? How would we know that that the opportunity to overcome death with life was even a thing if we hadn't seen in some concrete instance death overcome by life? So, God put this this salvation, this enablement, this energy on display by sending His, His Son His Son entered into the human realm so that we could see it. I love the way C.S. Lewis used to explain it. There's no way that a character in Hamlet would be able to understand Shakespeare unless Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. God, the Father, wrote Himself into the play by sending God the Son to enter fully into the human experience to suffer death that we all deserved on account of our sin, and listen to this, to overcome it through resurrection, showing that there was a way of escape. He made it known. I love this. He says, it has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. You know the word manifested? You don't use it very often, but maybe you've heard it in a movie or something. Uh, Let me see the ship's manifest. (laughs) What is a manifest? It's just a list of all the things that are there. We talk about a manifestation. It's an appearing. This has been manifested. It's been made known through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Like He just showed up on the scene. It's like the light turned on. And when He entered into this, how did He show God's power? It says that He did it by abolishing death and bringing life and immortality. Abolishing death. The word abolish here is interesting because I want to go ahead and point out to you a logical problem. Paul is saying that we should seek our energy in Jesus because He's displayed this great power over death. And here's the thing, let's be real. If you're a non-believer in here this morning, this is my attempt to, to be transparent with you as well. Uh, we're, we're talking about Jesus abolishing death, and yet it seems to me that people who follow Jesus still die. If I was you, I'd be wanting to know, <laughs> what in the world do you people believe? <laughs> Like, why would you be celebrating Jesus overcoming death if all y'all folks still die? The word abolish 
simply means uh, to rob of power, to break the power of, to destroy the power of, to end the power of. You get that, right? Like when you cut the power to something, shut it off. Christ destroyed the power of death. The presence of death he will one day destroy. But here it says he not destroys the, the, the presence of death, but the power of death. What is the power of death? What makes death so strong? How is it that Christians can say that Christ abolished death if death is still present? We haven't said that he's abolished the presence of death. We said he's abolished the power of death. What then is the power of death? What is its effect? What does, what does death do biblically? Well, death in the Bible is defined multiple ways. But one of the the powers of death is its power to separate us from God. Remember in uh, Genesis chapter 3, for those of you who have grown up reading the Bible, that's when Adam and Eve partake of that forbidden fruit. And what did God tell them would happen when they partook of that fruit? Do you remember? In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. But they didn't die. They lived for several hundred more years. This is where any good reader needs to engage and let the author define his terms. What does he mean by death? They died insofar as now they were separated from God. They died insofar as they were no longer welcomed into his presence, but they were pushed out from his presence and, in fact, forbidden from entering back into his gracious presence. Death, first and foremost, biblically, isn't just the cessation of physical life. It is that, but it's more than that. It's bigger than that. It's separation from God. That's how it's biblically being defined. And as an enacted parable of what it's like for one to be separated from God, God added the penalty of physical death. If you think physical death is so terrible, I agree. It's only the picture, the symbol of the greater reality. The greater reality is separation from God. To not be on good terms with Him. So what made death strong? Our rebellion against God, earning death for us, messed us up insofar as God was no longer for us, but against us, rightfully so. We had rebelled. We had done our own thing. So death, separation from God, initiated in time. It's evidenced in physical death. That's the sting of death, Paul calls it. And it's experienced for all eternity. Here's the deal. That separation from God that began when our first parents had sinned against Him, leading us all to be like natural native rebels. Nobody like really needed to learn how to rebel against God. But that has eternal consequences. It's not just the physical death, but it's forever being separated from His presence, forever experiencing His act of wrath for rebellion against Him. It's something that we don't want to be true, but we know deep down inside it is. That's why we dread death. 
Whether you agree with the biblical account of eternal wrath in hell or not, you know internally that you don't want to die because something terrible is going to happen. Like That's death. There's, there's this penalty associated with it. It's not only being removed from God's favorable presence, but it's this, this divine wrath. And so Jesus, though, listen, we're back to the text. It says that Jesus abolished death. He robbed death of its power. What does that mean? It means that the relational part has been fixed. For those who are in Jesus, there now is no longer God pushing you away, but he brings you into himself. Like things are good between you and God. You don't worry anymore about like what you need to do to impress him or how you need to pick yourself up or how you need to make yourself better. Now you know you've been accepted by God. He's abolished death. He's abolished that separation from God. He's already done that. Which means, listen to this, that he will one day abolish its tangible expression of physical death. That little picture, that little symbol, he'll one day rip that into. You say, well, that's a lot to prove. Well, he already proved it. He already proved it. That's in part why we're gathered here today. It'd be one thing for Jesus to say, hey, I'm going to provide spiritual, invisible life to everybody who follows me. And I'd be kind of like, um, okay. Well, if everybody still dies, I, don't, I can't see that. But you know what you can see? You know what those people did see? You know what they faithfully reported? Somebody not only experienced it invisibly, but externally. He did indeed die, but rose again three days later. He abolished death. The relational peace has been fixed. The presence of death will one day be fixed. And now forevermore we enjoy God's life. The sting of death is gone because Christ took it for those who believe in Him. I don't know, I don't know how this consolation mechanism works, but I do remember being stung by a bumblebee as a child running to my caretaker. It wasn't my mom. It was like a babysitter or something. And uh, I got my first science lesson in bees. They were like, don't worry about it. It can't do it anymore. It's dead. It just killed itself. And I'm like, yes, death to the bee. <laughs> Friends, I understand that the pain of the sting of death is something that we can't be immune for. But death to the bee. Christ has already absorbed its sting. The thing that you hate so much, that I hate so much, the thing that our world is constantly fighting against. I mean, the billions upon billions of dollars that people in the United States spend for wellness and to extend their lives and to fight death. Like, it will be gone. One has already defeated it. The stinger has been removed. That's why the old hymn writer, Caesar Milan, in 1882, wrote this fascinating hymn that we don't sing anymore. I know this is kind of morbid, but I actually asked my wife that this be sung at my funeral. The title of it is so good. It is not death to die. It is not death to die. I don't, I, the reason I think we don't sing it is because we're just so afraid to talk about death, period. 
But I, I want to read you just some of the modernized lyrics, the older ones you could follow, but let me just update it a little bit. For the believer, listen to this. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne delivered from our fears. Here's the chorus. O Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. He abolished death. Death is no longer dying. For those who have been delivered by the Lord Jesus, it is only that which delivers you into His eternal, favorable, active, manifest presence. This, this power displayed in Christ not only destroyed death, but on the positive end of things, it delivered life. No, notice in the verse, this is the last phrase that we'll look at. It said that, that Christ, when He appeared, not only abolished death, but it says, and He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He brought it to light. That's a really cool translation. Like basically, the word brought to light is, is the same word that we would use for the lighting of a candle or the turning on of a light switch. I like the candle analogy. Imagine a dark room with just a couple of candles. You can't see a cotton pick and thing until the candle's lit. It's as if the candle's not even there. Who cares about a candle that's not lit? It doesn't do anything. It's not doing its job. So it's like there were these two things that, that we really needed, that we really wanted. Life and immortality. These two candlesticks just sitting there while we're just like hanging out in darkness. And what the text is saying is that he brought it to light. He turned on the light of life. He turned on the light of immortality. And now it shines and its warm glow does its thing. What is life? Life is the opposite of death. If death is, death is separation from God, life is reconciliation with God. It's being received into His presence. You have life here and now because Christ lit that candle. When He satisfied God's wrath on the cross and when He rose again from the dead receiving that divine validation that His offering had been fully satisfied and paid and received, life was now a thing. It was on the table. You have life with God in Christ he not only lit the candle of life, it says he lit the candle of immortality. What's the difference between the two? Life focuses on our relationship with God now extending into our sinful past. Immortality deals with our life now extending into the future. Is this not the thing that people have been seeking for millennia? Immortality. Some would dismiss it and say, oh, well, I, you know, I don't really like the idea of your your idea of immortality, because frankly, I just don't want to be floating around on a cloud staring at a light for all of eternity. I'll take a pass. Uh, friends, you may have got that conception of heaven uh, from all dogs go to heaven. 
or from Dante, but you did not get that from the Bible. Immortality? Biblically? Is more real than your existence even now. It is physical. It is tactile. It is a new heavens and a new earth. Under the good, perfect rule of God. The reason why most of us don't want to die is because we have some stuff in this life that we really, really like. I'll be honest with you. I like good food. I don't like mediocre food. I like good food. I love pleasurable experiences. I don't get over sunsets. I love seeing those things. I'm always amused by the people clapping on the beach. (laughs) I love to hear the laughter of my children. I love good music. I love hanging out with people. I like appropriate displays of physical affection. Like there, there are just so many physical, tactile things that I can see and taste and touch and feel and hear that I really, really like. And guess what? That's immortality. You now get to enjoy that forever under the good rule of God Almighty, apart from the presence of pain and sin. That's the candle that Christ himself lit. That's powerful. That's energizing. I don't know about you, friends, but that could keep me going. I don't just have to have a few hundred people in the room singing at the top of their lungs to energize me. I could be thinking about what they're singing about whenever I jolly well please. It's an energy beyond Easter. I mean, for Timothy, as he's thinking about his brother in the ministry sitting there in that jail cell, he needs something that could sustain him. He doesn't need just some emotional hype or a sweet card. He needs something that can help him endure when it's his head on the chalking block. And it's nothing other than that which has been displayed in Christ. So what energizes our allegiance to Jesus beyond Sunday? Uh, It's what I've called in other contexts uh, a gospel grit. How many of you ever heard that term before? Not gospel grit, but just grit. Grit. You've heard the term grit. You put your hand down. It was uh, first popularized by the New York Times bestselling author Angela Duckworth. Uh, probably 2016, she comes out with this book that's explaining why certain people can make it through the most difficult of situations. Uh, this, it opens up in a fascinating way. I won't bore you with all the details, but she, she traces like the history of uh, West Point, the United States Military Academy, and like how hard it is to get in. I mean, it's some of the most elite people in the universe. You not only have to have your, the right ACT and SAT scores, but you also have to have a reference from like a vice president or a senator. <laughs> On top of all kinds of physical standards that you have to meet upon uh, admission as well. So it's already a rather elite group of candidates that get into this school in the first place. And then they spend the first two months of the, of the school trying to get everybody back out. 
They try to intimidate them out of it. So the formal study was done. Like, what did the people who made it through all have in common? Duckworth argues that it's grit, which she would define as a combination of passion and perseverance. Passion and perseverance. For her, anybody who would be successful in any endeavor must have that rare combination. Some people are passionate and have no perseverance. Some people are persevering, but they have no passion. They're not energetic. You've got to have them both. What we're talking about here, the allegiance, the energy to continue to faithfully engage in the spiritual battles and opportunities that wait for you in the weeks and months and years to come is indeed passion and perseverance. But here's what I would ask Duckworth, where does that come from? What could energize a passion and perseverance that would keep someone faithful even into the face of death itself for their Lord Jesus? Paul's listed it here. Where does that kind of passion and perseverance come from? Where do you get that kind of grit? The gospel. This good news about the Father's decreed love in Jesus and the Son's displayed love by overcoming death. Like that's what energizes it. That is what gives us hope for the days to come. I've heard it put this way. I think it's helpful. Hope for tomorrow provides energy for today. Hope for tomorrow provides energy for today. You know what it's like when you don't have any hope for tomorrow? You're just like, I don't, I don't, even, I don't even want to face it. I don't, I don't want to do anything. So, so not only do you dread what's going on in the future, but now you've debilitated yourself in the present. You don't even want to engage. But when you feel energetic, when you feel hopeful, when you know that there's something good secured for you, you're like, bring it on. Hope for tomorrow provides energy for today. The gospel hope here points us to tomorrow. Christ has already remedied the future. All is well in Him. I would say to you, brothers and sisters, those of you who are in Christ, those of you who are trying to remain faithful to Jesus, those of you who are frustrated at yourself that you haven't been as faithful as you want to be, that you haven't been as fervent as you want to be, that you haven't been as persistent, listen, rest in the source who alone is Jesus. Maybe the source of your discouragement is because you keep looking to yourself and not to your Savior. We tell ourselves things like, oh, I'm such a failure, I'm such a screw-up, I'm so inconsistent, and I'll never be able to overcome this. And surely you will not with that type of attitude. Like what ultimately is being expressed here is you look not to your faithfulness, but to the faithfulness of the one who has saved you. I'll put it this way, what got you in keeps you in. If Jesus was the one who got you in, he keeps you in. What gets you going keeps you going. Jesus got you going. He keeps you going. You say, come on, Justin, be practical. Tell me, beyond these uh, philosophical, you know, abstract notions of depending on Jesus generally, what does that look like? I, don't, I think I say this every week, and the elders can correct me if I'm overdoing it. But like the only way that you'll be able to remind yourself of this hope in Jesus is through the means that he's provided. When you continue to pray in faith and dependence upon Him, you're showing that you are deriving your energy not 
from yourself, but from the Lord Jesus. There is no greater expression of faith than for you to stop doing everything else and to talk out into the air, trusting that God's hearing and that he's going to do something about it. It would look absolutely crazy to the rest of the world, but you know that there's something there. Prayer, the Word of God. And I'm not just talking about reading your four chapters a day or whatever legalistic things that people do sometimes to say, all right, I just have to get through my religious like ritual. But like reading the Bible and just trying to understand, what does this teach me about my Lord? How does this remind me of what He has already done? And I understand, friends, that some parts are harder than others. But if too difficult, just stick with the things you know. <laughs> I do like the fact, that's time out, that even Paul himself will acknowledge, or excuse me, Peter himself would acknowledge that some portions of Scripture, like Paul, are hard to understand. Isn't that nice when one apostle says about another apostle that, yeah, some of the stuff he writes is kind of difficult to understand. Hey, friends, I get it. There's some difficult stuff to understand. But it is the source by which Christ has revealed himself to us. We know the truth through the word. We experience that reliance upon the energy he provides in prayer. And then I'm just not, I'll never stop saying it. Don't underestimate the energy derived from being together with God's people. The reason why often you feel so energized in a church setting isn't just because it's a group. All groups do or multiply the feeling that someone could experience internally. So have you ever seen a bunch of teenage girls crying? All they do is they echo that negative emotion with one another, and it just, it just builds. It isn't, groups don't make people happy. Groups just turn up the volume of an emotion that's already there. Friends, when we gather together as a church, we're not feeling what we're feeling because we somehow like produce the right group dynamics. We don't, we don't have that, that flashy system here. I can't even t- figure out how to turn the microphone on. <laughs> but there's a real energy here, and you know it. You feel it. And it's not something we've produced. It's something that the Spirit does in the life of His people. When we gather together, it energizes us. I get it. It may look unimpressive. But it is doing something because we're pointing one another to Jesus. I was in the airport last week a lot. A lot. (laughs) Uh, Layovers and such and the craziest thing happened. Crazy. That's a crazy thing happened. I, um, I was absolutely exhausted. My phone's about to die. And uh, I had one of those little, like, backup battery things that, you know, you're supposed to plug into your phone. It was dead. <laughs> it was like a metaphor for my life at the moment. <laughs> like, I was... Anyway, I take, I take my phone... Um, and I'm like going to start looking for another charger, see if we can find out on these batteries. And I put this, uh, I put my phone on what I think is a cup holder and all of a sudden it lights up and I'm looking at it and the little lightning bolt is going through the battery, uh, picture. And I'm like, what is happening? Koreans, you got to love them. They had a key charger 
in the, in the, on the table of the airport. Like, you know what those are, the ones where you just... But it was just kind of hidden there. It was just a little circle. I just thought it was a cup holder, you know. But it was a source of energy. So unimpressive, so plain. There was nothing that would really draw your attention to it. There wasn't a big sign saying, charge here. It was just rather plain, ordinary. And yet, just by resting that thing there, energy came. Friends, I get when I keep talking about the Word and prayer and being together as a church, it looks so plain and ordinary. Kind of like a cup holder, like, all right, cup holder. But the way that God's orchestrated is there's an energy that sustains you for those battles, those temptations, those opportunities in which you seek to engage. Avail yourself of that. To those of you who are here and maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about, spiritual energy, you've had interest. But you've never really been able to get over the hump. You've explored certain avenues. You've, you've sought certain religious experiences in times past. You, you've tried your hand at maybe certain religious rituals. And yet it never seems to stick. You still seem just as dead. You still feel the same dread on the inside. You still like are repulsed by death as much now as ever. Like you just don't have any life. Oh, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is a clear indicator of the source of true life. It's the proof positive that something supernatural has indeed taken place. You want to debate historicity and such, we could talk about that some other time. But the truth is, under the most unlikely of circumstances, this gospel fact has persisted and been passed on to billions. The truth of what we claim ultimately rises and falls on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I'm not telling you to believe in something like the Easter bunny that cannot be verified I am asking you to stake life and eternity upon something that has been written down, recorded in history, and believed on by many. There is life here in the Lord Jesus and in Him alone. Alone. Don't, don't mishear what I'm saying for Jesus-y type religious stuff. I'm not saying Jesus plus certain rituals or Jesus plus cleaning up your life. I'm saying Jesus plus nothing gets you everything. There's a difference between the roots that derive life and the fruit that will be expressed from it. I'll tell you, (laughs) you root in Jesus, you derive life from Him, there will be some fruit and there will be some changes. But the root must be in Him alone and in nothing or no one else. 
And so I'm so glad that you are here today, but if you lack energy for life, if you lack the optimism of eternity in God's favorable presence, I would encourage you to look to Jesus in faith alone. And if you don't even know what that means, talk to one of us before you leave today. This is our only hope. This is our only energy for life and for death. I close with a quick story. It's the Spanish Inquisition. It lasted for hundreds of years, and many of you would know if you'd taken a religion class in college or in high school that this was a dark spot on the life and ministry and testimony of the Roman Catholic Church in particular. It's hard to get estimates on how many people died from this period. It's believed conservatively, conservatively, that 3,000 to 10,000 people uh, were executed uh, formerly for, for not believing what the Roman Catholic Church said they should believe. On top of that, an additional 100,000 to 125,000 people died in prison while awaiting a trial. For centuries, people were burned at the stake, stretched to death, tortured uh, for failing to live up to what the magisterium said people should believe in. And, and one uh, particular group of people uh, that were executed, uh, believe it or not, were people just like me and you. Did you know that in the Spanish Inquisition, if you were to have confessed salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus alone, apart from the religious hierarchy of Rome, you would have been among that number. There was one man in particular, his name was Guido Debris, who was doing his best to try to persuade uh, the emperor that what Christians like you and me believe, like what we confess, is in full alignment with the Scriptures. Like this is, this is what the Bible itself teaches. And so he would put together this document that would later be called the Belgic Confession. And in it, he is, he is putting himself out there as the leader of this factious movement, knowing that it could potentially, because he's signing his name to the document, knowing that this could potentially send him to his death. And ultimately, friends, it did. I mean, you talk about persevering under hard times for that which you believe. I mean, this guy writes a letter to the emperor who is executing people who believe otherwise. And he's saying, this is exactly where we find our hope. I am hoping that you would help me in this season and understand that we align with the Scriptures. Guido writes this to his wife, Catherine, a few days before his death. And I only share this with you so you can see, like, here's a man who knows how to find energy in the worst of circumstances. He says... Your grief and anguish troubling me in the midst of my joy and gladness are the cause of my writing to you this present letter. I most earnestly pray you not to be grieved beyond measure. If the Lord had wished us to live together longer, He could easily have caused it so to be. But such was not His pleasure. Let His good will be done then, and and let all that suffice for this reason. I pray you then to be comforted in the Lord 
to commit yourself to him and your affairs to him, for he is the husband of the widow and the father of the fatherless, and he will never leave nor forsake you. Goodbye, Catherine, my well-beloved. I pray, my God, to comfort you and give you resignation to his holy will, your faithful husband, Guido Debris. Now, that's a faith. Like, this guy's got some energy. I mean, he's got some gumption. Like, what in the world? You talk about, like, the fire versus the frying pan. I mean, this guy's in the fire. What in the world sustains him? The secret to his gospel grit is revealed in the first question and answer of that confession that he would write to the emperor. And I leave you with his words. What is our only hope in life and death? Answer. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul and life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly living and ready from now on to live for Him. Do you hear it? What's the source of that gospel grit? The determination of the Father. He's in control of all things. He will bring me to that glorious end. It's not up to me. What's the source of that gospel grit? The display of the Son. He knows this to be true because of what He has seen and experienced in the Lord Jesus. And what is your only hope in life and death? What is your only source of energy beyond Easter itself? The same. Let us look fresh for energy to our Lord. If you don't know what that means, talk to me after. If you do, would you please stand with me and let's confess that together. We'll stand, I'll pray, and then we'll sing a song of confession. Please stand. Father in heaven, affirm for us our hope, our energy, and life and death in Jesus and in Him alone the one who has abolished death, the one who has expressed life. And if there are any here who do not know it, Lord, even as we sing, I pray that they would submit themselves to you in faith for salvation. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.